So what's the best Christmas present you can give? The, the best present you can give. Now, I'm always going to say food. You know, I mean, to me, food is the best gift you can give. I mean, I'm going to love it because I'll enjoy it right then. And if there's some left over, I'll enjoy it later. It's fantastic. You know, won't get stuck in the closet. It's going to be eaten. But not everybody likes the idea of food for a Christmas gift. Some people would love a good tech gift. So I found a list of, of some of the most popular tech gifts that you can get this year. You might even get it as a last-minute stocking stuffer here in the next couple of days. Here's just a few things from that list. There is the Tiki Tunes, which is a small Bluetooth speaker that also doubles as an electronic Tiki Torch. So if your family's having a Christmas luau this week, this is something that you can do, something you can put there, a great tech gift. There's also what's known as the Handy Heater. The Handy Heater is about a little bigger than a, a smartphone. It plugs right into the wall like a, like a nightlight. And it's temperature controlled. It pours heat right there where it is. And I know at least three people, two of them on our staff, that would absolutely love a handy heater. You know somebody that might want a handy heater. I, I don't know how, how much you can find one in the next two days. There's also something that I hope my family will get me, and that is the Blissey Pillowcase. See, the Blissey Pillowcase is made of 100% mulberry silk, and it promises to improve your skin and your hair. So, you know, I mean, I'm kind of hoping that maybe I'll get one of those and avoid these uh, continued recommendations that I look like the infamous Pastor Phil. Then there's the dodo. It is spelled D-O-D-O-W, all right? So I'm calling it the dodow, all right? I mean, it's just there for the taking, so I'm going with it. So the dodow is this little tiny thing that you sit by your bed. It has this blue soothing light and the light pulsates and it's supposed to help you fall asleep. So with a dodow, not only will my sermons make you fall asleep, but you'll find something else from me that'll help you fall asleep. That's pretty good. I like that one. Food gifts are super. Uh, tech gifts are, are fun. But neither food gifts or tech gifts are the best gift that you can give. The best gift that you can get, you, you cannot get it at a grocery store, you cannot get it at a big box tech store. In fact, the, the best gift that you can give can't really be bought or cooked or baked or grilled or handcrafted or photoshopped or bedazzled. Now, the, the best gift that you can give is, is something that's this different. It's not just a gift. It is the highest good that you can strive for in your life. In other words, it is the chief end of your existence. It's why you are here. That that's the best gift you can give. So that sounds like kind of a big deal. So, so what is that gift? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Philippians 4, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever." Endeavor. Now, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. The best gift that you can give at Christmas and every other day of your life is to glorify God. That, that's your chief end. That's, that's why you exist, to glorify and enjoy God. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, just ask your own heart a few questions here. Why do you exist? 
I mean, really, if you're alone with your conscience, I mean, why do you exist? Why are you here? What do you think your purpose in life is? I mean, is your purpose just to get an education? Is it just to get a job? Is it just to get married, just to have a family? Is it just to, to love and enjoy your family? Is it just to love and enjoy your friends? Is it just to have a holly jolly Christmas? Or is there more to it? Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist. He's a best-selling author. He's also an infamous atheist in our culture. He's been interviewed once for the London Observer, and he was asked about the purpose of life. And this is what he said. Well, there is no purpose, and to ask what it is is a silly question. It has the same status as what is the color of jealousy? Everybody knows the color of jealousy, right? Candy cane, fire, apple, dark salmon, red. We all know the color of jealousy. So, so what about the other part there? Though? Is, this, is this true? I mean, is this what your conscience would say to you, that, that there's no purpose in life? Is, is he right? There's, there's no purpose to life? It's a silly question to even ask. A few years later, he was interviewed on BBC television, and he made this comment. I think science really has fulfilled the need that religion did in the past of explaining things. Why we are here, what is the origin of life, where did the world come from, what life is all about. Science has the answers. And so it seems as if he's affirming that there's no real purpose to life. It's, it's kind of a silly question, but then it's almost like, but if there is, then he feels like that, that science has the answers. So again, I, I just ask you to, to deal with your own conscience. Does, does that sound right? Does, does the math work on that? Has science been able to answer all the questions that you have about the purpose of life? For that matter, anyone's questions that they have about the purpose of life? I was reading the testimony of a young man named Eric and how he came to faith in Christ. He said this, I never expected to become someone who believed in God. It's a good opening to a testimony. He goes on, I grew up as an atheist. My goal in life was to find objective truths through science. I specialized in math and physics in high school and later completed a bachelor's degree in applied physics. And then he talks a little bit about, about what this means in his day-to-day -day life. He says this, there isn't physical evidence that can be used to prove or disprove the existence of God. This means that it wouldn't be scientific to claim that God does or doesn't exist. When I was younger, I chose not to believe in God. This was based in part on the very negative perception of Christianity I had at the time. As I grew older, I began to have questions that science does not provide answers for. When I was in high school, I often wondered, what is my purpose in life? I was ambitious, had plenty of motivation. However, it wasn't long until I became discouraged by the walls that I faced I sensed that something was lacking in my life. I felt the fear of uncertainty and meaninglessness. And then he said this. Science is a powerful tool for describing the world that we see. It helps us to build models for analyzing what we observe, to make formulas to predict how a system will evolve, and it provides a way to prove or disprove our hypotheses. And then he makes this comment. But... Science couldn't provide a solution to the struggles I was facing in life. 
Science is super fantastic. I'm, I'm a science nerd. I love reading about the, the latest discoveries in, in scientific research. But our souls need more than just science. There's, there's something more we need. Now, some of our young people are like, dude, I finally got on Christmas break. Will you stop talking about science? Move on, move on, move on. Or here's why I'm, I'm bringing the science up. I'm bringing the science up because I want you to go back to school in a few weeks. I want you to enjoy your Christmas break. Then I want you to go back and I want you to do your best so that you might become one of the world's best mathematicians or biologists or physicists, that, that you might be able to use what you have in a unique and powerful way. But I want all of us to understand that when it comes to science or, or math or biology or physics or sports or hobbies or grilling a pork tenderloin on Christmas Day, the ultimate fuel for everything in life is the glory of God. The ultimate fuel for life is the glory of God. What does that mean? How, how is glorifying God that kind of fuel, fuel that, that affects every single area of our life? Well, this is what the Lord God said to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 45, beginning with verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Just feel the, the weight of those ancient words just in, in 2019. That this God, the Lord God, He is the one true God, the one who forms light, the one who forms darkness, the one who forms humanity, the one who, who forms well-being and even calamity. And He says He is the Lord and there is no other. If these things are true about God, and he has proven himself over and over and over again for thousands of years, if these things are true about God, then whatever your purpose in life is, it's connected to him. Whatever reason you exist, it's connected to him. More than 1,600 years ago, Augustine wrote these words, and they have not lost an ounce of punch. He said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The whole of the Bible points to the reality that the glory and majesty of God is your greatest good. That means that if the glory of God is your greatest good, that means that in everything in life you will never find true rest until you are believing in and clinging to and resting on and making much of the majesty and the glory of God. It is your fuel. It is your purpose. Paul's closing up his letter to his friends at Philippi and he closes up by saying, look, when it comes to the one thing that needs fame and credit and glory, it's going to be God. 
The glory of God needs to be first and most in your life as a Christian and in the life of the church. I shared with you last Sunday before the sermon about um, Pastor Shane Martin, who's the pastor at Lebanon Presbyterian Church in Winsboro. I went to Shane's funeral this past Wednesday afternoon. It was at Richard Wynn Academy in the gym. There were, I don't know, four or 500 people there. Shane died from injuries he sustained in an automobile crash almost two weeks ago. Shane's older brother, Brent, is one of my good friends, and, and Brent shared a eulogy at the service. And he talked about how when he would call Shane, they would always end up talking about the grace of God. That in the pulpit and outside of the pulpit, Shane kind of had a theme, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. And he said, we would often talk about salvation, and we would talk about how we are only saved because of the grace of God. That it is the grace of God the Father that we are saved through God the Son, through his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And he said we would talk about that and, and Shane would always make a big deal that the only thing we can boast in when it comes to our salvation is God, the grace of God. God gets all of the credit, he gets all of the fame, he gets all of the attention when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to my salvation is only by grace, only by grace, only by grace. And then Brent said something like this. He said, and that's the way God's people want it. And I'm standing in this gym of, you know, four or five hundred people, and I'm in the back, and I'm looking around, and the first thought I had was, I wonder if that's true. Is that how we think? Do we as believers say, I want God to get the glory. I want God to get the attention. I want God to get the fame. I want any boasting about my life and my salvation to be directed toward God. Is that the way we want it, or do we want a little bit of attention for us? When it comes to, to spiritual things, do we want just a, just a little bit of attention our way? Just a little bit so that, that maybe people will respect us or, or look up to us because we're, we're doing something spiritual and holy and religious. God's people want God to get attention. That, that's our goal. Paul was writing to his friends in a place called Corinth, and he said this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or go to a football game or go to grandma's for Christmas or go out to eat after church or get stuck in traffic on I-26 or go shopping at Harvison Mall, bless you if you choose to do that. Paul says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're a Christian, do what you do for the Lord. If you're a Christian, do what you do in such a way that God becomes the most famous person in and around and through your life. That's, that's the call we have as believers because we're part of a kingdom that will be forever and ever and ever. B.B. Warfield was a professor of theology at Princeton from 1887 to 1921. He put it this way, will you be off to your business tomorrow morning to make money? Good. For what end? Consciously in order to glorify God in the wise use of it? No? Well then, 
are you a Christian? That's the thing, right? <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of put it bluntly, right? So if you're not going to use your life and, and your money and your home and your family and your skif- skills and, and your talents, if you're not going to use those things for the glory of God, are you a Christian? Because the call of our life, because we've been saved, because of the grace of God, is that we would use who we are and what we have so that God would get fame and attention. So how are we doing at that? How are we doing at glorifying the Lord with our lives? I'll just sneak one way in for our church. So our Lottie Moon gift was $6,500. If my math's right, we've already doubled that. <laughs> I mean, praise the Lord. Thank you for your giving. That, that, that's one way that our church in just one way, we are glorifying God through our giving by making sure the gospel gets to places where it's never been heard. So, so there's one way we're glorifying God. Jeff Thomas writes this, to glorify God, you must think about him. God must be in all your thoughts. He must be recognized constantly and spontaneously as creator and judge. God must be as real to you as the sun in the heaven. And he says this, the idea of God must be the greatest idea you have ever had. In other words, as the hymn says, that, that he's our best thought by day or by night, that, that God and his glory, and his majesty, and his love, and his mercy. He's our best thought. He's our best thought. How do we get there, though? I mean, how do we get to the point that we, we spontaneously think of the glory of God in the rain on I-26? I mean, I'm super practical about this stuff. How do we do that? How do we sit in line at the mall you know, the one that's weaving around the whole store so we can, you know, buy a pair of Christmas socks for somebody. How do we stand there and spontaneously go, I am a child of the creator and the judge and the king of the world? Well, it only happens by how we're thinking. And if we're thinking, well, I can't believe i got to wait in this line. If we're thinking, well, I can't believe that we're not going to have, you know, the Christmas goose at our family meal this year, you know. If we're thinking, well, I can't believe that we're not singing this or we're not doing this at the the community parade or or the community church service, whatever it is that we're thinking, well, this isn't happening or I'm mad about this or I'm upset about this or I'm depressed about this, whatever it may be, how do we get to the point that we say, wait a minute, I am a child of the king and his kingdom will reign forever and ever so I can stand with these socks and it'll be all right. And I can sit in this traffic, and it will be okay because I am a child of the king. How do we get there? Well, here's one way we can think. And this one way comes from the skies of Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The angel said, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you Good news of great joy. I'm so glad that when God gave a gift, he didn't say, ah, just give him a gift card. You know, just, just order something off Amazon. It's fine. Whatever we'll do. No, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
A Savior has been born for you. Put your name in the blank. That, that's what I need to do sitting in traffic. A Savior has been born for Dow. He can make it in traffic. You may not like it, but he can make it. When you're standing in line, when whatever it is that you wanted didn't happen, whenever tragedy or, or trouble or triumph happens in your life, you can say, a Savior has been born to me, and that changes this moment. That's not easy. And I'm not saying we'll perfectly do it. But I'm telling you, it's real. These songs that we sing, they're supposed to move us to the kingdom that is forever. The fact that God gave a gift. In fact, the greatest idea that God has ever given the world is Jesus. And that that gift has been given to you so that a way has been made for you to no longer be in sin and darkness and death. That is a reason to glorify God. But what if you don't? What if you don't make, what if you're a Christian and you don't make it your purpose in life to glorify God? That it's not your passion and it's not your purpose. Or what if you're not a Christian and, and you don't make it your purpose in life to even think about God or salvation or anything connected to him? I was reading a story this week. It was about a king and his court jester, or as they often called them, the, the fool. And, and this jester made the king laugh. The king loved this guy. And so the king called him in one day, and, and this is what he said. You are the greatest fool a man could meet. Here is this carved stick. Keep it until you meet a man who is a greater fool than you, and then you can pass it on to him. As the story goes, years went by, the two men grew older, and, and one day the king called for the jester to come and see him. When he came in, the king said this, I am going on a long journey soon. The jester said, can't you stay here? The king replied, no. The jester said, are you coming back? The king replied, no. The jester said, are you making any preparation for the journey? The king replied, no. The jester asked, have you found out who you'll meet when you get there? The king replied, no. And the jester pulled out the carved stick. He presented it to the dying king, and he said this, I have finally met a greater fool than myself. How are you doing at glorifying God? Whether you're glorifying God or whether you're not glorifying God, it reflects something. It reflects the plans you're making for your life, and it reflects the preparations you are making for your soul. To glorify God is not a small thing. It's your chief purpose in life, and it's your chief purpose for the life to come. Paul wanted his friends to know that. He, he wanted them to learn and know and grow in what it meant to glorify God. And how does he kind of put an exclamation point on that statement? Look what it says next in verse 20. Amen. <laughs> That's a great sentence, right? Amen, period. Now, most of us know the word amen. It's, it's what's said at the end of a prayer or 
You know, maybe you remember when you were growing up at the Christmas Eve service, you know, your Uncle Rico would shout out amen every three or four times in the service. You know, it's something that you've heard here, there, and yonder. And the reason why you've heard it before is because it's a practice that goes back thousands of years. In the Old Testament, there were three basic reasons that you would use the word amen. Charles Spurgeon has said you would use it for asserting, you would use it for consenting, and you would use it for petitioning. You would use the word amen in asserting because it had some authority what you were about to say. Jesus used this often. We, we know it as truly, truly, or verily, verily. And Jesus would say those things, and he wouldn't say it at the end of what he was saying. He would say it at the very beginning. One night he was talking to a church leader, Nicodemus, and this is what he said to him, John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's as if Jesus is saying, amen, amen, so be it, so be it. Unless someone has been rescued by the hand of heaven, they are not right with God. It was a word used for asserting the authority of truth, and Jesus used it often. Amen can also be a word that's used as consent. It's kind of how Paul's using it here. He's, he's writing them, finishing up his letter. He goes, look, guys, I want you all to know the most important thing is the glory of God. And he makes this great statement about how God's glory is forever and ever and ever. And then he says, amen, so be it. He's consenting to that truth. He's agreeing with that truth. And in writing it this way, he's kind of helping the church to, to do the same thing. He wants them to learn that, that when it comes to the glory of God, they need to agree with that, and they need to say, amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily, so be it, that God's glory would be primary in our life. I'm consenting. I'm agreeing with that. So, just a, a quick practical thought. Should you say amen when I'm preaching or when someone's praying? Yes, you should. <laughs> Should you say it loud and dramatically, raise your hand, shout hallelujah, jump up and down on the pew? Eh, maybe not, all right? Eh, maybe not. Because see, the whole thing is everything goes back to the heart. If your purpose is, is saying amen in a sermon or, or in, a, in a prayer is to draw attention to yourself, then, then be careful, be wise. Because the purpose of an amen is not just to agree with it. Not just to say, so be it, because you think it's a great idea. When you say amen, what you're saying is, amen, so be it in my life. Not, good job, preacher, I like that line. But amen, that needs to happen in me. I need to leave today, and whatever truth I was willing to speak up about, it needs to be seen in my life. Whatever truth I was amening in that prayer, it needs to be a longing of my life. It can't just be a word that I say. And it doesn't have to be an amen. It can be a yes. It can be a that's right. Or it can just be a mm. Sometimes a mm is good. And it doesn't have to be loud. Sometimes it can be in a whisper. And, and in fact, that, that might be most appropriate. Again, at the funeral this week, with several hundred people there in, in the gym and and when my friend Brent finished his eulogy, one of our other friends, uh, as he walked away from the podium, he just said, God bless you, Brent. Just loud. And it was beautiful. 
Because Brent loved his brother. And he knew how hard it was for him to stand in front of this crowd because he knew how broken he was. He knew how much pain he had in his heart. But he also knew that there was no way Brent was not going to stand at his brother's funeral and say, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God is the only way to be saved. It doesn't always have to be out loud in a church service or in a funeral. It can be a, a whisper. And you know, it doesn't even have to be said sometimes. We have a, a dear brother here in the church that, that he listens to the sermon like he's watching the last two minutes of a close football game. On the edge of the seat, smile on his face, rocking a little bit. I mean, I love it. It, it energizes me. You know? So it doesn't even have to be an amen. It can just, it can just be your, your activity. It, it can be your demeanor. Again, the issue is the heart. There's some frozen chosen people that sit in churches all over the world and they sit there and they're reverent and they're respectful and they don't do anything out of the ordinary in the service. They do the same traditional thing over and over again. They never change. And some of those people are lost and without Christ. They're respectful. They're reverent, but they don't know Jesus. And then there's some people that, boy, they never sit still. Man, they are jumping. They amen everything the pastor says. They said, that's right. They're mm, 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 the whole sermon. But they're lost and without Christ. See, it's, it's not the motion on the outside, whether it's no motion or lots of motion. It's not the motion or the commotion. It's the devotion in our hearts. That's what determines our true amen. That's what determines our our true so be it. John Piper says this, talking about prayer and amening. As others pray, you whisper, amen. Whisper, yes, yes. Whisper, mm. Whisper, do it, Lord. I say whisper partly because I want to make it easy for you and partly because you're not supposed to take over and draw attention to yourself. He goes on, the murmur of quiet amens and yes and mm is like background music that supports the one who's praying or preaching and joins him in the prayer. And at the end of a prayer, a deeply felt amen in unison is a powerful moment before the throne of grace. Why don't we just do that together? And all God's people said, amen. There's something beautiful about that. So, heart-inspired background music, I'm all about it. Love it. So, you know, leave the snakes at home. It's fine. But, you know, it's a good thing when we're praying with each other, when the choir's singing, when, when someone's preaching, it's, it's good for us. Maybe we need to increase our amens a little bit. They don't have to be loud. They can be under our breath. They may not even be out loud, but just something within us saying, yeah, I am part of the gospel. I am part of this church. I'm, I'm part of what we're doing. I am not a spectator. I'm in this. I'm in this together. Amen can also be used for petitioning. Probably the most beautiful place we see this in the Bible is Revelation 22, verse 20. John says this, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, 
Lord Jesus. So John's quoting Jesus here. He's quoting to Jesus, hey, I'm coming again. And John adds a little petition at the end. All right, come on. Come on. Yeah, we're, we're ready for you, Jesus. Come on. Please, please come. I think the French merchant that, that wrote O Holy Night was channeling some Revelation 22:20 when he wrote these words. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining away in sin and error. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary soul and the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, in a sense, every single time we say amen, we're kind of using John's petition. Why? Because every time we say amen as Christians, we understand this Christmas is not our thrill of hope. And our anniversary will not be our thrill of hope. And our birthday will not be our thrill of hope. And our team winning the game will not be our thrill of hope. And next Christmas will not be our thrill of hope. They will be a thrill. They will be fun. We can rejoice. We can celebrate. But as Christians, we know that our thrill of hope is found in Christ, in Christ alone, and will be found only in Christ in Christ alone. So when we say amen, we're always saying, come on. Come on, Lord Jesus, because this world's a mess, and it's not going to get better. We need you, Jesus, because the, the world is still weary, and it's still weighing down under sin. How kind and gracious God is to give us the greatest gift. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians verses, chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of peace, all the promises of hope, all the promises of joy and love, of salvation and satisfaction, all of God's promises are perfectly found in Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate amen. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, when our Lord actually came upon the earth, he was then God's amen to the long line of prophecies. Can you imagine? I mean, 400 years, just at minimum, 400 years of just silence from God. And then the, the way God speaks to the world again is through the crying of a baby. Spurgeon goes on, One by one, the servants of God had testified concerning the coming Messiah. Some had spoken evangelically with Isaiah, others with a more legal savor as Moses, but their testimony was to the same effect, that in due time, a prophet should be raised up, and that there should be born of a virgin a man who should at the same time be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father." These promises followed thick and fast. They were there. Man, the the prophecies, they were popping and, and people were putting it together. They followed thick and fast, all of them cohering, each one manifesting the self same coming one. But there was no amen to them. They were things hoped for, but not the substance thereof. Till at last. 
In the silence of midnight, angels sweetly sang his advent, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. For unto you is born this day in Bethlehem a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That babe among the horned oxen, that carpenter's son, was God's declaration that prophecy was the voice of heaven. Just listen to these next two sentences. With, with this in mind. If you think that Christianity is dying or fading or that it's just a hard time and that our nation's just going to hell and that religion is going down the trash, if any of those thoughts are ever in your mind, listen to these two sentences. Now, ye prophets sleeping in your tombs, it is witness that ye lied not. No matter what you may feel is happening in our country, in this world, the gospel is alive. And Jesus is king. And no one will ever be able to change that. They didn't lie. I love this last part. Now hath God himself come forth and set to his seal that ye are true. You got it right. Prophets, you heard me speak to you, and you just kept telling the story. You know, we don't have to be cute at Christmas as Christians. We don't have to be creative at Christmas. We can just keep saying, unto you has been born a Savior. And we can say it over and over and over again. It never loses its power. And this virgin said this, and the blessed form of Mary's child God's amen appears both to shepherds and to wise men. And my friend, it has appeared to you. The amen of God has appeared to you. You've heard the story, even just today. The message of the gospel has made it to your ears and your mind and your heart. And so the real question for all of us on any given day not just December 25th, but on any given day. Can you say amen to Christmas? Can you say amen to Christmas?